Welcome to Roots and Ruminants, your podcast for creative and innovative use of farm, pasture, and rangeland. We're going back to the basics of raising and grazing livestock, growing your own forage, and practical land use. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Roots and Ruminants. Uh, we've got an awesome guest today, uh, South Dakota from Cologne. We've got Van Mansheim on here, and uh, Van's going to talk a lot about uh, his diverse crop rotations that he does. Does some cool things with grazing, brings some cows in, and certainly one of the, the best no-till soil health promoters in the state, uh, part of the so- so South Dakota Soil Health Coalition as well. So uh, Jared and I are sitting down with Van this morning on a cold January day after a blizzard, and so a great day to podcast, right, Van? Yeah, good spot to be inside. Great spot to be in. So uh, before the podcast, we were talking that originally you were a Brookings native. And, of course, uh, Jared and I are here in Brookings. Uh, how, did, how did you get to Cologne, South Dakota from Brookings? Well, it's kind of a long story. Um, through my childhood, my dad's sister went to South Dakota State. And, and uh, during her time there, whenever um, she had breaks from school, I would go back, jump in her car and go back with her to the farm. And I just fell in love with the farm. And my uncles were very diverse in uh, agriculture and livestock at that time. They had hogs and uh, they were doing milk cows and they had a beef operation and they were planting many crops. And I just kind of fell in love with all the action. And uh, then as I grew older, I just kept helping them. And uh, and then in my 30s, um, my uncles had some health problems. And so I decided that me and my brother bought some land of, of theirs and uh a couple years later i moved down here and uh i've just loved it um, and my uh brother still farms with me i farm with my nephew and my brother and uh we do all sorts of crops and uh do a lot of custom grazing and uh so yeah but it really uh i think i was really open to uh Soil health, um, when I moved down here, because I wasn't stuck in a rut on how I was taught, and I was open to new ideas, and so the transition um, was pretty easy for me. Uh, My uncles were already doing a lot of no-till, but not totally, Um, and they were using cattle, integrating on uh, cropland somewhat, Um, but uh, yeah, I've just uh, taken it and ran with it. since I moved down here in 2011. So tell us about that crop rotation. So what does uh, what does the average acre look like from a rotation from your standpoint, and what are some things that you will, you know, use quite regularly, or what things will you be willing to use? For- well, one thing that we're really unique still on our farm is we do a lot of small fields. Um, we have no fields over 60 acres. Um, a lot of 20 and 30 acre fields, and across the quarter of ground, I'll have five different fields and have four different crops. Um, partly the reason we do that is because we're still big into pheasant hunting. Uh, our family loved the pheasant hunt, and we know you cannot hunt pheasants in 160-acre cornfields. And so we keep our cornfields in that 30, maybe sometimes 40 acres, um, but uh, we keep them small. So it, it makes it easy to have a more diverse crop rotation when you do that because it's more natural. Um, so on a quarter of ground, we may plant oats, wheat, beans, and corn all in one quarter. Um, and, uh, we have very little alfalfa. My uncles used to have quite a bit of alfalfa when I moved down here because they were, had the dairy cattle. 
Um, but we've pretty much switched a lot of that. We still plant perennials, but we, uh, I might take a 40-acre field and uh, put it to a six-way grass perennial with some alfalfa um, and uh, use that as, in the rotation for five or six years and then put it back in the crop round. Um, but we grow wheat, oats, uh, soybeans, corn, flax, and then we have a you know uh, roughly about 100 acres of food plots every year that we use for pheasant hunting, and uh, then we just graze those off when the cattle come there in the winter time. Um, and then in 2015, we started doing cover crops, which was a huge learning experience for me. Um, I just bought the seed locally and bust the guy's soul, but he didn't know anything and. Uh, I was putting all brassicas out there, and uh, the first two years I planted them, all my wheat stubble was gone when I came to springtime. And I learned the hard way that you need to uh, get some variety and diversity in crop rotation or in uh, cover crops, and uh, and get a lot more a lot more grasses out there. And uh, you know that's totally changed now. So we started planting rye back in I think 2018. Um, the head of soybeans, I feel that's very important uh, to get that uh, residue because uh, the lack of residue of soybeans just really bother me, uh, the lack of carbon. And if you can get rye growing in front of it, it it's huge. And fortunate enough, <clears throat> the first few years we did it in 18 and 19 and 20, we were very wet. And so we had lots of moisture, which is very critical when you're planting rye before soybeans. And you have to monitor that moisture. But uh, those three years, we didn't have to. And uh, we actually even have a roller crimper. And I've roller crimped rye two times. And it's worked just amazing. I just love the effect of it. If you can get that rye to grow all the way to pollination and crimp it, the residue is just phenomenal. But uh, obviously, we're in a very limited climate, moisture, uh, rainfall climate. And we have to monitor that very closely. So some years... I'm spraying it off as early as April 15th, but there's still a value of having something green. Um, you know, this year, December, we, I was grazing rye, green rye in December, late December, uh, right mm -hmm. at Christmas time. And uh, it was just a real big value to that. And next spring, as soon as it, things come out of dormancy, we're going to get a green field again, uh, where most, uh, most people that don't do that, uh, their fields are going to stay, black and uh you know have nothing growing or living and have potential of blowing and that sort of thing so yeah that's awesome so you said oh, uh, so many cool things there and i want to get back to talking more about your smaller fields there but you know for listeners that don't know where coloma is i mean you're in south central south dakota so moisture yeah. what's your annual precip look like are you we're an average 15, of probably 18, 18 yeah 18? okay but you know i've in the let's see i've been farming this will be my 14th season. We've had as low as nine, and we've as, as high as 40. And uh, so it's really, you see the extremes, um, but uh, we can grow a really good crop on 12 to 14 inches of moisture. Really good crops. Um, yeah, that's something. I, I think, uh, I mean, I know we've increased our organic matter um, about 3% since I've been down here. Um, we were in the mid twos, low to mid twos when I started doing soil samples, and now we're over five and everything. And uh, I have some awesome videos of, uh, I think it was two years ago, yeah, 21, spring of 21, we came off a really dry winter and fall. And in April, we started dry. And April 28th, we got four and a half inches of rain. 
And you could see to on our fields versus our neighbors, the water infiltration that we took in. And that summer became really dry. I think we ended up with 11 inches of rain and our corn was able to stay green and uh, be resilient and uh, produce a decent crop where most of my neighbors were chopping silage uh, 15th of August because it had burnt up. And it really shows the differences when you can infiltrate that water by having better soil aggregation and infiltration. And it just makes a huge difference. Yeah, I think when, you know, when we see like these drought plans put together, I think that's probably the biggest key component of it is just what are you doing to ensure that your water holding capacity and your water infiltration rate is, is, is where it should be, you know, like that's where it all starts is you yeah. gotta, you gotta take it and hold it when it's available. Yeah. And, uh, and that's just by following the basic principles, five principles of soil health and continually doing that, you will be able to infiltrate water. And that is the most important thing. And I don't understand tile a lot, but to me, it seems really frustrating that we put these tile lines at three foot in the ground and soil should be able to handle water five and six feet in the ground. If you look at the native prairie system, there's roots down there over six foot. So there's obviously water should cycle that deep and why we're putting these tile lines at three foot and then running the water away. Um, I, I don't totally understand it, but uh, it's, it seems to me that we could use uh, the plant to be able to get that water to go down deeper. And, uh, you know, our, our production system with our short season crops, you know, corn's only really growing roots for about four months a year. Well, the native prairie system, they're growing roots 12 months a year and or have at least a living root for 12 months. And uh, they're actively growing probably nine to 10 months a year. And uh, so I think trying to mimic that native prairie system is really, really important. Completely agree. That's, I, yeah, and I think every time we talk about cover crops, that's the one thing that we try to preach and promote is, all right, if we've got all these things in the native prairie between you know, native warm and cool season grasses. We've got flowers and florbs and legumes out there, and we've got various root types and depths. How do we do that with a cover crop? And I think you kind of alluded to that too, is when you first did cover crops, you probably threw out some brassicas and it was a low carbon to nitrogen ratio in your cover crop species. And, you know, with rapid decomposition, you see your, your plant material decompose fast, but that also then in turn starts to chew up some of your wheat residue too. And, that's probably one of the biggest um, benefits to people in the East, but one of the most uh, biggest mistakes for people in the West, you know, in a low carbon uh, system where, where they're trying to hold more residue. People in the East, that works really well, where if you're going from wheat to corn, it would be very nice to start to chew up some of that residue and, and burn it up faster so that you can plant corn back into a warmer soil. Well, then the radishes, the turnips, they work pretty darn good. So, yeah, depending on where you're at and how you're going about it, that's probably one of the best things about cover crops. You can utilize them differently depending on what your goals are. Yeah, and uh, I, I've really expanded my cover crop, and I don't plant the same thing twice. Um, now I try to – I'm up to like 20-some species every year. I try to plant five or six of every different type of crop. Yeah, of course, cool-season grass, warm-season grass. Um, and this is following wheat or oats that I'm going to go to corn. 
And I think it also makes a difference if you're grazing that cover crop because you're going to eat up a lot more of that carbon or residue. And so if you're going to be grazing, you can't have too many grasses in there. And, you know, and it's weird. Some years I'll have mustards that will just flourish. Um, And then the next year I hardly see any mustard for some reason. (laughs) I have no idea why, but the sunflowers and the sedan may go crazy. Um, You know, every year it seems like something's different. And uh, there are two crops that I will put in every cover crop that I plant, though, because I really think they benefit the soil so much. I plant buckwheat and flax in every one of my cover crops because I just think it's so important. Um, Our soils tie up a lot of uh, phosphorus, and I really believe that the buckwheat is able to somehow get that phosphorus and make it available to the next year's plant. And we've gone from... Uh, we do not apply any phosphorus anymore on our whole farm other than a little bit on starter on corn. I don't do any on my soybeans, even my alfalfa fields I have left. I don't put any out. Um, don't use any on oats and don't, don't even use any on wheat. And uh, how long? saved us a lot of money and I have not seen any ill effects on it. So when you do soil tests, um, where are your phosphorus levels at? Are they are they telling you that, you know, based on traditional wisdom, you should be adding? Or do you just have naturally, you know, high levels of phosphorus, just, just maybe not always available? Or what's that? What are those so we do like? a total nutrient test. Yeah. And I want to know what's totally in the soil, not what's available. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we have not seen those levels change in five years. They have not gone down at all. And so, yeah. five, so that's five years, five years you've been doing no additional phosphorus or how many right. years? Yep. Five years. Yep. 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 And then with the, like uh, the flax, I really like that because I like the mycorrhizal fungi friendly and I just think it helps. One year I even put some flax and oats into when I planted beans just to see uh, if it would do any different uh, test. And uh, when I seeded them and then when I sprayed uh, in July, I just killed off that flax and mm-hmm. and uh, oats. And uh, I did not see any difference. We took some soil samples and we still didn't see any difference. The only soil samples we really take are PFLA and total nutrient tests. Because mm-hmm. we're, we're more worried about the biology. Um, and the first four years, I was really frustrated. And then last year, we started getting really excited. Um, when we do our PLFA, um, we're looking for our protozoa levels. And we were having all prey and no predators. And finally, this last year, we have predators, which is telling us that our soils are becoming more bacterial. And the biology is working more effective. And now we're going to start cutting down our nitrogen rates and start testing to see if that makes any effect. We've already cut down about 40% in this 10-year run. Uh, I had a goal to be 90%, but I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but I just keep weaning myself off of, of uh, nitrogen and uh, don't seem to have any effects. I'll, I'll be honest, this year we had a record corn crop on 15 inches of rain. Hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. It's amazing. So how do you explain the, okay, so you haven't put on phosphorus for the last few years and you're decreasing your nitrogen. Are you doing that because of the cover crops that you're implementing or are you doing that because of the biology that you're promoting? I believe it's the biology. And um, 
I look at all these principles of soil health all as tools. Um, I think it's the more tools you use, the easier and faster it's going to happen. And I try to compare to fixing a combine. You're not going to try to fix your combine with a 916th inch wrench. You're going to have many tools. And the more tools you're going to have, the faster you'd be able to fix it. And so I just use all these tools of livestock integration and diversity and cover crops and, you know, keeping a green living root and having crop residue. And they're all factors, and, but it doesn't happen overnight. Um, and the way I can explain that is on our PFLA test on that protozoa, it took us five years. Of, I think we were just putting too many chemicals out there on that ground that that uh, we weren't getting the right bacteria to work. And now we are getting that as we've continually weaned ourselves off of these uh, synthetics. And uh, I heard some, I, I don't know, I'm a big Twitter guy and I love reading on Twitter. I don't comment much, but, you know, I read a lot of these stats and research. And I read one time where the average producer in Minnesota puts about 10 gallons of diesel fuel on his field a year through all of the practices of tillage, uh, spraying fertilizers and all that sort of, and I just keep thinking if you keep doing that year after year, after year, after year, how many gallons and pounds of oil and diesel fuel have you put into those fields? You know, and I don't know if that's a true fact or not. I have no idea, but it just stuck with me that we, we can't be doing that to our resource that we try yeah. to grow up, produce our food off of. And uh, so we'll, I think it's, I just I try to do everything I can to promote life um, and uh, bring back the insects. And they're again, cover crops. I love to have stuff in there that flowers because mm -hmm. I go in my cover crop fields in late August, early September, and the amount of li living life in there is phenomenal. Um, and we won't, we don't spray fungicides. We don't spray pesticides. Um, we just have not had to do all that stuff where all my neighbors are doing that stuff. Yeah. So I'm, I'm doing an article right now uh, for an Expire newsletter, but I'm doing it about rangeland succession, right? And it's, it's one of those things that is really paramountly important to understand, but we don't appreciate just how, how unique and how strange it is that in, in healthy, you know, native grassland ecosystems, things actually got more diverse and more complex. The, the farther they moved along the scale of succession and then got to a more desirable state. And it's really, really abnormal, you know, for things, you know, most of the time things turn into chaos, right? As things go, things degenerate over time, right? Or they get oversimplified and things sort themselves out. Whereas grasslands, the, the more time that went on when they're managed healthy, the more diversity and more complexity that they get, the more valuable they become. And so it's it's uh, as you're talking about you know what you're what you're doing in your soils and your cropland acres and like you said just mimicking mimicking nature it really is building that complexity back in it takes time but that's that's like the preferred or ideal state is to have that level of complexity and i i think there's a perfect correlation between rangeland and cropland the soils function no differently it's just how we manage them and how they've been managed for the last hundred years and that was interesting. After I started, went down this soil health journey on my cropland, I started my native rangeland soil health journey about four years later. And it's yeah. amazing to see the effects of using the same principles 
on that rangeland that you do on your cropland, how that affects. We had a brome invasion. And what we've done is we've started a twice over grazing rotation um, that uh, Leland Schoen from the NRCS out of White River uh, has been working with us. And it's, uh, to see the native species and diversity come back and the forbs come back is just amazing. And we are only managing by the way we move the cattle. Uh, we spray no chemicals on our rangeland and we have virtually zero thistles out there. It's just because the way we've managed it and uh, we're getting way better water infiltration. Our stock dams are actually going down. We'll get a four inch rain event and most stock dams are filling back up with water, and ours are not. <laughs> the water is going in the ground the way it's supposed to. And then when we get dry in July and August, our pastures still stay green and things are still living. And sad to say it, but our neighbors are burning up. And But bringing that diversity back, I mean, I see more flowers. I see, Because of that, we see more birds. We see more insects. Um, we're seeing dung beetles. Not all of them, but we're starting to see dung beetles come back. And, mm -hmm. you know, you got to provide the habitat for those, that biology to work. And uh, it's, it's strictly on management. Yes, it costs us some money infrastructures. We cross-fenced our um, past year, but there were some programs to help us do that. Mm -hmm. um, and now it's just a management, and it's, it's very easy. But to see it come back has just been so much fun. Um, when we started, we could find less than 10% natives, and now we're almost a 50% natives out, species out there, and that's in five years. Wow. And is that, are you hitting that brome early and late, or what is your grazing strategy to knock that down and promote more natives? No, so what we're trying to do, for one, we do not hit it until June 1st, which is uh, kind of weird. People don't think about that, but we want the vegetative native plants to be at a three and a half leaf stage. And then we want to keep them in the vegetative state. So we hit them between June 1st and July 15th is the first rotation to try to keep them in that vegetative state. And then we give it about a 51 day rest and then we come back and then we hit them again. And we call that our harvest and production side. Um, so the first time we hit them, we're trying to keep them in the vegetative state to, to stimulate, uh, root growth. And, um, we're using the plant with photosynthesis because we're only taking off about a third the first time we go through. And then the second time we'll take up to a half and we're in the, uh, we're in there for twice as long the second time. Um, it's, it's a great system. Um, the, the key, it's a more of a low, lower rainfall system. I think if you're over 22, 23 inches, it doesn't work quite as well. But it's when you're under that 20 inch to 10 inch is when it really works well to keep that plant in a vegetative state. Because brome down here, it grows awesome in May and June. But by June 15th, the quality is so low and then it just shuts down because it gets so hot. And so that's why for us in a native system, brome is not a a viable plant for uh for grazing in july and august so we just want to so we when i first went up we did not see any western wheat at all zero and now all my draws are full of western wheat and mm -hmm. where before they were johnson grass and foxtail barley and because we weren't infiltrating but now we're infiltrating water and uh, other plants can grow 
but we're seeing lots of porcupine, porcupine grass, uh, green needle. I mean, it's just really been fun to see it come back. And the seed buds were there. I mean, they, they were there, uh, but they were just, the brome was uh, virtually choking it out with its canopy because it grows so fast. But so we kind of ignore the brome and we just try to um, graze it biologically effectively by keep, uh, keeping the biology in the native system. I think one of the things I always think about uh, when people talk about, you know, restoring their, their native pasture back to natives is, all right, but what does that really mean from a profitability standpoint? You know, and I think as you're describing what was coming back, my mind was going, all right, now that means more grazing. That means better quality grazing, right? Like you're getting rid of the brome who's really unproductive in the summer months. Yeah, you get some pretty good tonnage and, and growth early in the spring, but it's just not sustainable for the year. And if you have Western wheatgrass in its place, you're still going to get early spring growth from that. But now you have a, a harder, more nutrient-packed uh, grass that, that that is better for the cattle versus a washy, wet, um, highly digestible brome that runs right through them. Now you've got warm season grasses that, you know, in a drought situation are certainly higher yielding. You've got flowering legumes probably that are better quality. I mean, all those things, they do ultimately come back to more return per acre because you've got more consistent growth throughout the season. And I think, you know, that's the thing that um, I don't think it's something that people get caught up on, but it's something that, you know, it's, it's hard to get to that point where I need to go away from my set stocking rate or I need to increase my management. I need to increase my infrastructure because you see this initial cost um, and, and, and people got to see this return and they got to ultimately got to see where it's at. And that's you, you described it right, because you are seeing a return because of the better quality grazing, the, the more diverse grazing that you're that you're getting. Yeah. The plants in July and August are just so much more healthier and they're just so much more nutrient dense and the and the the uh the cattle are just putting the calves are putting on more pounds and the cows look but you know look great coming off them and uh, it's more resilient there's no doubt there's more resilient again here again in 21 most of my neighbors were pulling their cattle off uh first of september we were able to keep ours out there till october 15th and it just makes you more resilient by doing that, by having health, healthier plants and rangeland. You also move the, your, your peak productivity from your grasslands from growth way farther into the summer. And, you know, we don't, it's pretty common sense, but I don't think we realize it. Our stocking rates increase every day that the cattle are out there, right? The calves are getting bigger. Or if we're running yearlings, they're getting bigger. They actually have more nutritional requirements every day that they're out there because of the growth cycle. And so when we're peaking the 15th of June, we're going to grass in the 1st of June, we're peaking at 15th of June in the season-long grazing, we're increasing our requirements and not growing hardly any new forage out there. We're just continually going back to a stockpile of continually regressing quality brome grass as our needs are increasing every day, right? And if you can move that into the natives, now you're peaking in July and August. Yeah. And that's the one thing I uh, heard from somebody is, I think it was Dwayne Beck said, the sun is the only thing the government hasn't figured out how to charge you from, charge you for. So you might as well use that energy when you can. Well, if you don't have green living plants, you can't use that sun yeah. for photosynthesis to keep growing vegetation. If you graze it down to the ground, there's nothing left. And all it can do is grow back from roots. And then when you have to grow the plant back from roots, you're using a lot more energy because you're not allowing to use the sun's energy that is technically to us free. 
And mm-hmm. that kind of, uh, I keep that in my back of my head all the time. I'm thinking about that. Well, you know, cause you're only taking off a third of it the first time you're thinking, wow, there's just so much more forage out there, but you're, you're using that forage that you're leaving as a tool in the sun to, to can you continue to grow that forage? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when you I, buy a piece of land, all you're buying is, is a, well, I, I mean, I don't want to dis, discredit all the things that we need to do to build healthy soils and things like that. But essentially what you're buying is, is a square piece of property that sunlight's going to come through, like a prism, like a yeah. glass paint. That's what you're getting, right? And that's the only thing, that's the only reason it has value, right? Because there's going right. to be sun that comes through that glass pane window over your 160 acre purchase. That's it. Yep. Sorry. So the ahead. cattle that you've, the cattle you have in, you said you, you're bringing them in? Yep. Yeah, we own no cattle. Um, I didn't okay. grow up yeah. with livestock, so they really scare me, especially at calving time. I just don't know enough about them. And so we uh, bring in cattle in the summer on our native rangeland. Um, and then in the wintertime, we bring in about 400 head, uh, over 400 head to graze on our crop residue and cover crops and bale graze. So um, we bring them in about November 15th and keep them till February 15th, about 90 days. And uh, we have them in groups of 200. And uh, we run, you know, just quarter by quarter. And when the weather's nice in the fall, um, they do mostly uh, crop residue grazing and cover crop grazing. And then when it gets cold, like right now, and the snow's covering everything, then we move them to the bale grazing. And uh, we've been doing that for five years. Um, it's awesome. I love it. Uh, I think it's the most economical way to take care of cattle in the wintertime. Um, most of my neighbors are out feeding their cows right now. And I am going to go out here when we get done with this podcast and make sure they have water and drive by and look at them. <laughs> and then I'm going to come back home. And that's going to be my day. Um, we give them for bale grazing. We, uh, um, the hay that we graze is baled right on that property. Um, so we're trying to keep the nutrients right there uh, where we hate it. And we line them up in rows and give them uh, four to five days worth of feed at a time. And so they can't be selective. They have to finish those bales and then, uh, then we give them another four or five days. So we do have to move fence about every four to five days, uh, depending on the weather. And uh, so that's the extent of how we really take care of them in the, you know, right now until they go home. Can you talk through your fencing system there? So you're using poly wire with pigtail posts and are you, are you putting them in the bales or how are you? Yeah. So we're lining, them, yeah, we're lining them up sideways. Um, so we can put the pigtail post in the, in the edge of the bale, the side of the bale and uh, using poly wire and just put them in a row and that's that's our row that we use sometimes if there's a big space then we will um use you know the little uh rebar steel post um in between um and uh, we just use a drill and drill a hole if the ground gets too frozen the last two years we've had enough snow that the ground never freezes um so we just stick them in stick them in by hand and um don't have to put them in very far because that poly wire is so light it doesn't take a lot to hold them up um, so, and once the cattle are trained on that hot wire, they respect it. The biggest drawback we have is when we have ice or frost, heavy frost. Um, we just have to make sure and get out there and shake it off. 
um, mm-hmm. before the cattle realize that it's on there because the weight of the frost and the ice can bring that poly wire down. So, Have you ever tried to reel up uh, a whole spool of poly wire that has ice on it? Uh, yeah, we did about uh, two weeks ago when we came back from Christmas. Um, it was total ice. And uh, what we did is we uh, just didn't do it. We we just took it and hung it on a fence and waited for the sun to knock it off a couple of days later because you just can't do it. It's not feasible. super heavy. Yeah. And it don't fit on. I mean, and these reels are half mile and no. I got a half yeah, mile of uh, line to put on it. And if you got that ice, you're not going to get to get it on there to roll up. But uh so yeah, so it works out pretty good. When you're bailing, last year was what's that? Oh no, go ahead. Last year, you said last year definitely was a challenge. I'll be honest and tell everybody it was a because we had almost a hundred inches of snow, and the cattle would only walk where we made paths with the tractor. Um, so we had to drive a path right along the bales every year or every week to when we were moving them, so the cows would go to the next row of bales because we had it would the. Snow was chest deep on them, uh, two feet deep out, out, in the, out in the open. And so we had to make a path for them to get the bales. And we also had to make a path so we could walk to put up the next roll of poly wire. So we did uh, have to do a lot of tractor time last year compared to normal years. I would still say it was less than people still feeding cattle because I would only have to run that tractor every four or five days versus every day. But uh, in 2000, uh, winter 2021, we actually had 500 head of cattle here in the winter and we fed them for 90 days and I never started a tractor for 90 days. It was all that's, by. That's cool. Yeah. And it's very economical and you yeah. keep your nutrients right where they eat it. I mean, there, there are, there are fertilizer spreaders, the cattle are, and uh, the producers that, that we take their cattle in, they just love the shape that the cows come home in. They're healthy. They, they do a lot of walking um, you know, they're, they're, uh, yeah, they're in good shape. And, uh, so it works so, out yeah, really I think well. When you, when you compare like your, uh, you, you talk about fuel use, you know, that's automatically the first thing you think about it for an expense on a tractor feeding that. But now it's, it's not so much the fuel, it's the, it's the equipment expense of repairs that are just astronomical where you have one minor thing go wrong. And that bro, I mean, that that literally can blow all your profits if you have a hundred cows to feed through the winter. Right. Even yeah. I, you know, I fixed I fixed two hydraulic hoses. I bought some oil, some hydraulic oil because I leaked so much, and it was like eight hundred dollars, and that was just from the feed wagon. It was eight hundred dollars. Like, you know, there's profits from four calves, and it was just a very very minor mm-hmm. fix for a feed wagon. So. Yeah, the, the the less you can use equipment, especially expensive equipment, the better. And the time savings. I mean, uh, you know, Christmas time, we go back to Brookings for three days and we let the cattle take care of themselves. Our producers are close. They're only, you know, five to 10 miles away from where I live. And they'll come check the water. And that's what they, you know, they let us leave for three days and um you know, coming up, I'm going to go to Rapid City for four days, and I'm able to leave by doing that. I don't have to go out and do chores every day. I still can go to ball games, you know, go to do stuff, and you, you're not you're not married to your livestock. You let the livestock work for you. Now, yes, there are times when you cannot leave. Um, when it's 25 below this weekend, 
we're going to make sure and check them more often and make sure that water's open and, uh, you know, be a little more hands-on. I'm not going to take off when there's a blizzard coming, but, uh, but when you can get away, you can get away. It's, it's really nice. It's, I think it's great for family living, uh, you know, the mental health of families and, uh, and that sort of thing. So, so speaking of coming up four days, um, South Dakota soil health, convention is coming up in just a few weeks. Van, what are those what are those dates and tell us a little bit about your involvement with South Dakota Soil Health Coalition and uh, and what the meetings look like this year. Yeah, so I've been on the South Dakota Soil Health Board since 2020. Um, ironically, I took the board spot of my mentor, Brian Jorgensen, who's helped me on my journey a ton. Uh, it's been a great relationship. And when I have questions, I call him and he tells me what not to do, which definitely saves me a lot of time and money most, you know, versus telling me what to do. But, uh, so yeah, we have our annual conference coming up in Rapid City at the Ramada Inn, uh, January 22nd and 23rd. Is that the dates or 23rd and 24th? I don't know. 23rd and 24th. Okay. 20, I have to be there the 22nd. Okay. 23rd and 24th. It's Tuesday, Wednesday. And we have, uh, this conference has just been awesome. Uh, the last few years, it's just blown up. Uh, last year we had over, over 400 people attending. Uh, we're hoping for a great crowd. This year is the first year we've gone West. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have some really good speakers. Jay Fear from uh, Bismarck, from the Minokan Farms. He's a conservation NRCS guy. Um, Zach, John, Zach Smith, Zach Smith. Uh, from Iowa, who's stock cropper. Uh, he's really innovative. He's uh, I went to his field day last year in Iowa. It was just awesome. Yeah, uh, to see all the people there, all the young young families, young kids. Um, he's got a way where uh, a young person or a person that has an acreage could raise all their protein on their little acreage and uh you know feeding livestock you know i'm talking chickens and goats and pigs and even cattle um you know just with this he calls it the stock cropper and it's, it's really we had, innovative we had zach and, on the podcast we had zach on the podcast about two months ago so yeah no, it's, it was really his field day was just awesome it was so community involved I would say there was over a hundred people there and 50 over 50% had nothing to do with a farm. I mean, they weren't farmers. They weren't, you know, uh, in egg business, they, they were, you know, they, or academia. They were just community people that wanted to see what he was doing and yeah. were intrigued by it. And all the kids that were around <laughs> his chicken coop, it was pretty good. Neat to see. Um, and then we have, uh, I mean, we have, this conference, since we're going west, we definitely made it more diverse as in because we know we're going to have more ranchers and that sort of thing. And we got uh, Lyle Zinga coming from Idaho. Uh, I can't think of all the people that are coming out, but uh, two days of just awesome speakers, um, networking. Um, and that's really the big part of it is the networking. You meet people that are like minded with the same mindset um, and uh, will help you uh if you have any questions or problems we have great sponsors that uh, uh feel great value into what our organization is doing and we really appreciate that and uh, it's just a really neat event um you know kind of kicks off the year of all the events that we do but also uh we uh, look back at last year and see what we've all done and then we're just trying to change the world 
make make mm-hmm. farming more fun, uh, better for families, um, better economically, and better better for our natural resource. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, always a good event. Um, I won't make it this year, Justin. You going out? Are you going west? Too? No, I too have another speaking. Okay. Well, there'll be it. plenty of people from Millbourne Expire there, uh, regardless. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so things are getting bigger, but yeah, uh, yeah. I'm going to miss it this year. Feel bad, but miss miss it uh, during Freeland's you know rain here. So Sean Freeland was also on the podcast back on season one. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's our chairman right now, and uh, he's doing a great job. And uh, so just a lot of good people in this this organization. Uh, that's what I really like about it. It's we have a great staff. An awesome staff um, from Cindy is our coordinator, but our our board is all producers and, uh, you know, from all across different things of the state. You know, we're we got the whole state covered. We're as far up in northeast South Dakota with uh, David Kruger. He's around Millbank and then Sean Freeland's out in, around Rapid City. And uh, so we have the state covered and and uh, it's just a great group of people. So. So what's up next, Van? I mean, we talked through uh, everything that's going on right now. We talked through your grazing, your crop systems. Um, what's next in terms of farming practices and, and hope for the future of what you're doing on your operation? Well, I think, for one, we try to try something new every year, um, something different. Um, like, uh, you know, this year we're going to try a, a new crop. We're going to grow flax. Um, Are you never yeah, down here. And harvest it for grain. And harvest it for grain, yep. um, you know, just to get a different rotation, just another crop, um, you know, see if we can get a cover crop put back on it and uh, just try something different. What I really think the big buzzword across soil health is biology um, and how to get that biology onto your cropland. Um, you know, I know there's a lot of commercial biology. I'm not, I've not tried it. Um, I, I keep my ear open to it and try to see what people are doing. I know, you know, there's seeing more and more tests about that, but I think long-term that's something that we're on our farm are going to have to try if it's doing our own compost, um, or somehow getting that biology onto the seed or out onto the farm, you know, onto the land somehow. I haven't figured out what it will work best for us, but uh, that is definitely what we are researching on our farm. If we can keep that biology ramped up or even ramp it up even more. Um, I already do something I haven't even talked about yet. We already on our farm do no seed treatments on any seed that we plant. Nothing. Uh, we started that back in, uh, well, I, we've never put any seed treatment on oats, which nobody does. Um, but then I started doing it on soybeans about I don't know, six, seven years ago. And then five years ago, we started trying a little bit on corn. Um, And then, I don't know, maybe four years ago, we did wheat. And then uh, I think we've been three years where we've had no seed treatments on our seed. Uh, (laughs) What I'm talking about mainly is the neonicotinoid seed treatments, um, which is a challenge to get corn seed. That has been a challenge. Um, but we do it, we do it, I find it. I will not buy treated corn seed. Um, and I tell the suppliers that. And uh, so I buy from four different suppliers because of that, because most suppliers don't carry much of it. Yeah. And it's kind of hard to get and you have to plan to do it. But I think it's really important. I We're trying to build biology in the soil. 
But then we also are putting seeds in the soil with this neonicotinoid that is killing biology. To me, it just doesn't seem right. And we have seen no ill effects of it. I've done trials. Uh, the first three years we did corn, I would do side by side. I'd buy the exact same variety treated and same variety untreated. And we have seen no negative effects on it. And uh, now I, I'm not saying I've seen a positive effect, but I just, there again, talking, going back to the oil that we put in our soil, how mm -hmm. is putting the nicotoids in our soil good? It's just, to me, it's just, and we know it kills insects. We know it kills, kills the bees. We understand how important the bees are to the environment. And uh, so I just, I just don't plant any seed or seed treatments on. Yeah. Um, Seems consistent with the, uh, you know, kind of what your, what your goals are here is trying to maximize the most amount of life. You've got to be really judicious on how and where you might use any pesticides. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's what's that, you know, no one puts seed treatments on cover crops and they seem to grow for everybody. Why do we think we need to put them on all of our other seeds that we grow? It just, to me, it just makes no sense. You know, and I know the, the business world side of it, they make a lot of money. Um, you know, when I was first working with my uncle, I think you would pay extra to get it on your corn. It'd cost you $10 a bag or whatever. Now you, they just, they just charge it with everybody. Just, you know, they just put it on and charge everybody for it. So it, yeah. it's a moneymaker and that really frustrates me, but that's, that's the business side of it that, uh, I can't control. Um, but, uh, I do whatever I can to, mm -hmm. to go against it, I guess. Yeah. I think, I think you are at a really big advantage. You know, um, you said what, what year did you start? 2011? You 11. started farming? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, like your preconceived notions on how things should be aren't there. And that is a big advantage. I think, you know, if, if I went to a different industry and, you know, I would, I would, I would be the same way if, um, you know, but when you grow up with an agriculture and your granddad and father did it this way, you believe right. that it has to be that way. And it's hard to break that cycle. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's awesome. Positive thing you're seeing. Yeah. Well, good. Well, I certainly appreciate the, van, the, the time, Van. Uh, it's been very educational, enjoyable, easy conversation to walk through here today. Um, any last words you want to you want to close with, Van or Jared? I uh, enjoyed doing this. Uh, thanks for asking. Um, I love promoting soil health to people. Uh, if anybody ever has any questions, I'm open. Look me up. Um, I'm on Twitter. You can find my phone number on on our South Dakota Soil Health Coalition website. Uh, get involved with the coalition. We're, we are great people. Um, we just love helping people. And, uh, yeah, so that's it. Awesome. Thanks for doing this podcast. I think you guys do a great job. I enjoy you listening bet. myself. And uh, I don't know if I want to listen to this one that we did. <laughs> yeah, that's like a little hard. I don't like hearing myself talk. But no, yeah. nobody does. Yeah. But, uh, thanks for all you guys do with soil health and promoting that. I really appreciate that. Yeah. You bet. Awesome. All righty. Well, thanks again, man. We'll see you. Yep, yep. Thank you.